Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. connected. Stay connected. Welcome to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century with me, Lex Marinos, and... And Patricia Amplett. How are you today? Very well, Patricia. Yourself? Very well, too. And I'm really looking forward to our show today. Yeah, it's it's jam-packed with stuff of interest, uh, (laughs) as you would hope. Great people. Now, our first guest is Professor Jenny Hocking. Tell us what she's talking about. She's going to talk about what I consider, and maybe some of our listeners will too, the mighty Whitlam years. And it's 50 years since it came about. I know. And and, uh, Jenny has been researching it for and and trying to get access to records and stuff like that and real get down nitty and gritty on the dismissal. And you'll hear how that's going. Uh, And then that will be discussed by people who weren't born when it happened. I don't Maybe Meredith. Oh, that's not was quite born. true. Meredith, Ooh. maybe. She might have been in kindergarten. Anyway, they've all tested negative, so they're allowed to go into Jeff's cafe, uh, <laughs> which is still in the tent. Uh, but, but it's got lighting and air conditioning. It's lovely. And the important thing is, too, it's what they test when they come out that's all yeah. important. Yeah, <laughs> that's entirely right. <laughs> it's one thing going in there, but what have they picked up whilst they've been in there? Well, uh, one of the concerns is that there there are people in there selling negative tests. Is so, that yeah, right? Yeah, just so people can that's leave. That's not nice. That's awful. I know, I know. And nostalgia town with an old mate of yours. I'll step down if you don't want me. And the other one is... Four million three thousand oh, two hundred twenty-one years from now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who Judy is Stone, it? Judy Stone, Yay, yeah. little Judy Stone. You and her would be very close, I would imagine. We are close. Always hmm. have been. Hmm. So, gambling addiction happens to lots of people. Too many people. David Tunnicliffe today will tell us about gambling addiction. And then we're stepping out. We're going to Brisbane with Mister Silver Memories. Ah, what a lovely man he is. Gary Thorpe from 4MBS. Oh, it's going to be good. Let's get on with it. Okay, here we go. And looking very much forward to having a chat with our next guest, Jenny Hocking. Jenny is an award-winning Gough Whitlam biographer, widely published author, the inaugural Distinguished Whitlam Fellow at the Whitlam Institute and Emeritus Professor at Monash University. Jenny famously won a 10-year campaign and a four-year legal battle to have secret letters between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and the Queen, released by the National Archives. The letters relate to Kerr's 1975 dismissal of the Whitlam government. Jenny's latest book, The Palace Letters, The Queen, The Governor-General, and The Plot to Dismiss Gough Whitlam, tells the story of this remarkable archival research journey and the impact of the letters on the history of the dismissal of the Whitlam government. It was published in November 2020 with a foreword by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and has been described as a political thriller, absorbing courtroom drama and vital Australian history. Jenny, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Lex. And firstly, how would you characterise that 10-year journey? Well, it, it was both 
fascinating, uh, extremely frustrating, uh, very revealing, and in the end exhilarating because, of course, we have achieved what no other Commonwealth jurisdiction has, and that is to have the Queen's contemporary correspondence released against her wishes, and no other Commonwealth nation has been able to do that. Royal secrecy is a very real thing and none of the royal documents can ever be seen without the Queen's permission. So it has been a landmark case and in terms of what it's told us about the dismissal of the Whitlam government, it's been genuinely shocking and I feel a great sense of gratitude to the legal team who worked with me for so long on a pro bono basis to bring those documents to public knowledge. It's our history. We should own our own history. And I'm delighted that we now do. Oh, I think we're all delighted. How much do you think is still hidden and what was the extent of the redactions? Well, in those particular letters, um, which Kerr was writing, the Governor-General Sir John Kerr was writing with great regularity to Mm. the Queen in the months leading up to the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Sometimes he wrote four letters a day. I mean, he was utterly obsessed and a very um, disturbed, I would say, disturbed man, um, particularly about Gough Whitlam's term in office. Um, and, and, And Kerr always said, that he consulted nobody else, that he acted alone, that this was his sole decision. And, of course, we now know that's completely untrue. So the release of the letters was a very important part of filling the gaps in that history. Because of the nature of the legal action, the High Court made it very clear that there should be no redactions. And so when the letters were finally released by the archives... I should say it cost the Australian taxpayer close to $2 million for the archives to unsuccessfully contest that. But when they were released, there were no redactions. There are, however, Patricia, many redactions from many, many other files in the archives that relate to Kerr's discussions with others, that relate in particular to other discussions in else, elsewhere with the Queen and with Buckingham Palace. And they're, they're materials that I maintain should be released by the archives as a matter of course and which they're still holding on onto very tightly. Jenny, I remember the, the dismissal all, all too well, all too vividly. It seemed, uh, obviously, it was political and constitutional, but there also seemed to be a, a personal edge to it. it. It really seemed as though Sir John Kerr didn't like Gough Whitlam. Well, there's no doubt about that. It was from the very first letter to the palace. It's extraordinary. He is undermining the government that has only just appointed him. Look, I think there is an element of a sense of who has the most power at that point, but I'm reluctant to reduce it to a sort of a question of two personalities. Yes, they're two big, very big, strong uh, men with extraordinarily strong backgrounds in law and politics. But beyond this, we have to remember that there was a deeply... Uh, 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 embedded conservatism in Australian politics from the previous 23 years of conservative government that simply would not accept the election of the Whitlam government. And you saw that in extraordinary terms as early as five weeks after the election of the Whitlam government. The Liberal Party was saying we will use our numbers in the Senate to bring down the government. They just could not accept their new position in opposition and the fact that we had a Labor Party in in power and in office. So it was a combination of things, but it took a particular individual in Kerr 
to be prepared to act with such impropriety and deception of the government of the day. Is there one thing that sticks out in your mind of surprise at what you found that you thought, oh, wow? Well, Patricia, I'd, I'd seen many instances of what was in the letters beforehand. That's why we were able to argue that they should be opened. I'd seen extracts, I'd seen commentaries by Kerr about them. But really nothing could prepare me for how detailed his antipathy to the government was to the Queen, to Buckingham Palace, who is meant mm. to be politically neutral, and how she engaged with that discussion. She engaged with Kerr's undermining of the government at every point. Kerr revealed to the palace two months before he dismissed the government, he revealed that he was considering dismissing the Whitlam government and nothing was ever conveyed back, back to the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. Um, he revealed to the palace that he would most likely not take the formal legal advice of Australia's Solicitor General, a truly shocking statement. And again, the palace was well aware that Kerr was acting in effect as a rogue Governor General. So reading this in letter after letter and seeing the extent to which the Queen responded, I find deeply troubling. More than that, it's, it's a grave concern. Uh, Jenny, it, it does beg the question, uh, how else was the Queen getting info? Surely not just from one person. She must have had a, a broader view, more advice than that. Well, that's a very good question, Lex, and I think it gets to the heart of why these conversations should not have been had. You know, Kerr was a deeply... Uh, partial reporter, to say the least. And it's precisely why the Governor-General does not take advice from the Queen's private secretary, as he clearly was. He takes advice from his former legal advisers and his constitutional advisers. That is the Prime Minister of the day, the head of elected government, and the Australian Solicitor-General. Now, their advice was totally different, of course, from that that Kerr was assuming and passing on to the palace. And that's the nub of this problem. The letters should have been purely reporting back on matters that had happened in Australian politics, not reporting in advance and seeking the advice of Buckingham Palace. It should simply never have been done. But the palace made no attempt to, to find out what other people thought? No, and did not speak to the Prime Minister about it. And, I, and that is my greatest criticism of it, is that their responsibility was to open up a channel of communication with elected government and to, at the very least, make it clear to the Governor-General that he had to speak to the Prime Minister about these matters. Kerr made it very clear to the Palace and to the Queen that he was, in his own words, remaining silent to the Prime Minister. Now, that is preposterous. A Governor-General cannot remain silent to their Prime Minister. So, yes, they should have drawn a line around it and said, no, we're not going there. You speak to your Prime Minister. But they did not. It is 50 years uh, at the end of this year since the election of Gough Whitlam and uh, I know Lex and I were quite involved with its time and all, all the great things that went before the election. I know we all have opinions. How do you think the best thing that uh, happened to Australia after Gough Whitlam came to power? Well, there are so many things we can talk <laughs> about, but it was a transformative moment, absolutely no doubt about that. We had for the first time the introduction of universal health care with what was then Medibank and is now Medicare. We had free tertiary education, which is just extraordinary in the numbers of so many families that have never been able to send children to university were, were deeply affected by that. Women in particular, who traditionally their brothers may go to university, but the 
The family was not in a position to also send their daughters. So many women returned to university in middle age mm. to, to get a degree. Um, we saw Indigenous affairs, for example, become based on a notion of self-determination and not that old Menzian notion of uh, quasi-assimilation. But we also had, you know, really vast immediate changes. For example, it's often forgotten that there were young men of the age of 20 who'd been conscripted to serve in the war in Vietnam and by then a deeply unpopular war who refused to go and were, in fact, in jail. And the first step that the Whitlam government made was to release those young men from jail and to stop the prosecutions that were awaiting hundreds of others. And, of course, at the age of 20 back then when Whitlam came in, you didn't have the vote. I mean, young people today probably wouldn't know that the voting age was 21, not 18. And, and again, there were so many electoral reforms. So, look, on so many levels, this really did transform Australia and it modernised Australia. And it's not too much to say that that's the impact of the Whitlam government. And it remains today, those reforms were lasting mm. reforms. And uh, we tend to take them for granted now, like Medicare, yeah. but, but they would not have come about except for the Whitlam government. Mm. On a personal level, I, I, all of the things you mentioned were fantastic achievements. But for me, it was there was also a, a, an overnight journey from cultural cringe to cultural pride. The support for the arts was fantastic, and it became possible for, for someone like me to contemplate a career in the arts. Yeah, the arts was one of the most dynamic and uh, heartfelt changes. I think you saw that too in the expectation of change and support for Australian arts and Australian performing arts and so on, um, with a number of artists, including Patricia, who were involved in the It's Time campaign. You know, it's a wonderful thing to see so many. You know, I grew up at that time. I could see familiar faces from television mm. and um, other, you know, personalities, they're singing in this sort of wonderful anthem for change. And it was just marvellous, but it did indicate how stultified the arts community felt, particularly mm. towards the end of the Menzies, post-Menzies period. And I think it's because not only was Australian production not valued, I mean, there was no doubt about that, um, but also there was a very strong sense of ministerial control over arts grants. Now, that resonates with certain things in our recent history, but, you know, that Whitlam always was very strong on these things must be at arm's length. We must value merit and not um, a ministerial decision, and it just transformed the arts dramatically. Mm, we went from a cultural desert to one where we could hold our heads high and be absolutely proud to say we're Australian. Look at us. Look what we can do. It was so big. It, it was. It was a wonderful, you know, I look back often because of the work I do at that period and at the policy speech, and what strikes me is that even though they hadn't been in office for 23 years, there was such optimism throughout the policy mm. speech. You know, Whitlam had this great belief that we could as a people, achieve a better place and a better society and that the best way to do that was through government, through parliament. Mm. And it's really full of positive um, possibilities for the future and I think people took that on board with great excitement. Mm. Jenny, I know we can't undo the past, but from your re research, have we learned anything? Have we learned that, that this could never happen again? Oh, mm. Lex, I'd love to say that. But no, unfortunately, I would say the opposite. 
you know, this is the frightening thing is that everybody said, would have said beforehand, oh, that could never have happened. A Governor-General could never dismiss a government that has the majority in the House of Representatives. Their arcane notion of reserve powers doesn't even exist anymore. But, of course, it, it was found to have existed purely because Sir John Kerr used those powers. You know, the real argument at the time was, is there even such a thing as a reserve vice-regal power in the day of democratic parliament. Now, unfortunately, that means, if anything, that sense of reserve powers has been strengthened by the mere fact that, that Kerr used them. So my great concern is that, yes, they do. the circumstances do remain constitutionally possible. It's possible for a Governor-General to remove a, a Prime Minister who retains a majority in the House of Representatives and retain, replace them with the party that lost the previous election. And that's what happened in 1975. And unless we move to be a republic and redo those powers, that's where it remains. Jenny, at the moment, we're all striving for a voice, uh, Indigenous First Nations voice in Parliament. Whitlam's Aboriginal Affairs policy was quite unbelievable at the time. Can you tell us more about that and how it felt? It was a moment of big change in Indigenous policy, really fundamental change, um, Previously, starting with Menzies but continuing right through to the McMahon government, um, there was really very little action in in that space that so desperately was calling out for action um, in Indigenous affairs. And there had been, you know, a series of escalating demands that um, the very particular needs for Indigenous people and land rights ought to be recognised and ought to be at least developed or that process begun, always falling on deaf ears um, in the 60s and into the early 70s. And even though the Commonwealth had gained that power to make laws in relation to Indigenous peoples in 1967 in the referendum, the famous referendum that year, really the government had failed to pick up any of the possibilities that now attached to them because of that successful referendum. And this was something Whitlam felt very strongly about. And he referred to that repeatedly in many scathing comments in Parliament that the first the Holt and then the um, Gorton and McMahon governments had simply failed to take up the possibility of, of, of effecting change in Indigenous relations following the referendum. Mm-hmm. So that culminated just before the 1972 election with the erection of the um, tent embassy, the Aboriginal tent embassy opposite Parliament House. And extraordinarily, and I think this is symptomatic of the shift, the McMahon government's reaction to that was disgracefully heavy-handed and they sent in the police. Rather than trying to have a discussion or even enter into consideration of what needed to be done, desperately needed to be done, they called in the police to rip down the Aboriginal tent embassy. And I think it was Gordon Bryant, Whitlam's future minister, who realised that the tent embassy was actually established on um, on public lands and, and the police could not be called in. And that's really um, the background to why it remained because they found a legal loophole to that. And Gough Whitlam was the only political leader at the time to have walked across from Parliament House and to have sat down with the embassy participants and spoken with them and listened. And mm. I take that as such a such a such a very, very moving, and it's more than symbolic, but it is symbolic, commentary on how he felt about Indigenous affairs. People 
in power weren't listening and that's why the tent embassy had come to the seat of power. Mm. You will listen to us now. And, of course, the other great image is that... uh that transfer of dirt from Gough Whitlam's hands to Vincent Lingiari. It, it seems unbelievable that the Whitlam government only spanned three years. Have we positioned Whitlam correctly, or is there further revisionism to take place? The history of the Whitlam government is constantly being revised, and I think it took a long time for it to take its proper place, uh, and I've always mm. thought that because of the polarisation of the dismissal, it sort of infected everything. And people tended to look back at the Whitlam government and through that prism of dismissal, which is a very different look from if you come to it from the beginning and you recognise that there was actually a 20-year period, 23-year period which preceded it, in which Whitlam came into the parliament in 1952 and for 20 years worked at rebuilding the Labor Party and making it electable. That's before he even got into office. So in that context, it's an even more extraordinary period. But I think having done a lot of work myself in the last uh, decade or so, um, that history has very much changed. And Whitlam himself, when I did the biography and interviewed him several times, he said to me that he and Margaret recognised the moment at which the Australian people's view had once again turned and recognised, begun to recognise Whitlam and what what his government had done. He said he'd come back from his period as UNESCO ambassador, Australia's ambassador to UNESCO in the mid-1980s, and he and Margaret were attending, I think, an opera in the park in the Domain, and he said as they walked up, members of the crowd stood up and cheered, Uh and he said he really felt that things had changed and that he he was recognised as a, as a political figure. But it did take a long time because the history was deeply divided and quite deliberately so because of the remaining questions and concerns about the dismissal itself. And I think it's taken really until the last decade that we've started to acknowledge what an exceptional government it was um, and how remarkable it was that Whitlam won two elections, and yet was still dismissed, but also what a remarkable legacy he has left. Jenny, please remind us of the name of your most recent book. The Palace Letters. Yes. The Queen, the Governor-General, and the plot to dismiss Gough Whitlam. (laughs) Uh, And Patricia, I should say that we do hope there will be a a documentary film about that travailed through the courts and and based on the book. So uh, watch this space. We certainly will. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. I'm reluctant to say it's time and we must finish, but thanks very much. Thanks so much and uh, goodbye. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Many thanks, Jenny. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe, where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. And welcome once again to Jeff's Cafe, where we're going to talk about that interview that we've just heard with uh, Professor Jenny Hocking about the Whitlam legacy. And joining us are Meredith, Meredith Bergman, who's a good friend of the program, joining us from Sydney, Lockie, our audio editor extraordinaire, 
And Lorellen from Ichuka with us again. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have this intergenerational chat. Meredith is a boomer. Lockie is Gen Y. And Lorellen is Gen X. Now, Sorry to pipe in real quick, Jeff. Gen Z. Gen Z. Oh, you're a Gen Zer. Yep. A Zoomer. Even younger. A Zoomer. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so, Lorella, and Lorellen and Lockie, it was, it's mm. only Meredith and I who were even alive when uh, Whitlam was elected in, in um, 1972. We're the only people who remember what it was like before. Uh, but it's all in, the, in, in history for you. Lorellen, what, what, do, what does it mean for you, uh, the three years of Whitlam before you were even born? Yeah, it's a very good question. This has um, been a fascinating topic for me. I'm not an overly political person, so I quite enjoyed hearing about the Whitlam government. Um, and I didn't realise that the coalition had been in for 20 plus years before that. Um, so this was all news to me. It's been very, very interesting. And I think um, now that I have a bit more insight, you know, I'm feel quite privileged really to have been born in 1975 and to have been able to reap some of the benefits of things like Medicare and free university study and, um, you know, the amazing progress he made with our Indigenous communities and our mentality towards them and um, women's rights and health reforms and all kinds of amazing things that he did. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually been a really cool journey through history for me listening to this. Yeah, same with me, actually, because I, well, it's prehistory for me as well. And the first prime minister I ever remember was John Howard. Mm. So that's saying something, I suppose. So like all I've really known, because I wasn't really a big political person growing up either, but it's a lot of these things that we take for granted now, you know, like you said, Medicare. Legal aid. like just Yeah, legal aid too. <laughs> like, a lot, like a lot of these things, it's to me just growing up like that's just a norm for Australian society so it's really interesting to hear well I guess the progress that has been made yeah looking into it I was also fascinated about the relationship that he built with China um and I thought geez doesn't this resonate so much with where we are right now and that whole history repeating sort of thing where the coalition had sort of destroyed that relationship with China the Labor comes back in oh am I is that too controversial (laughs) um (laughs) um, you know and it's sort of you're seeing that that history repeat but like how fascinating that he was so forward thinking to you know behave in the way he did and listen to people the way he did and yeah yeah what do you remember, Meredith? Well, the, the interesting thing about Whitlam coming to power was I was in the middle of my revolutionary fervour at that time <laughs> and we thought of Whitlam as quite uh, conservative because he did come out of the right of the Labor Party. But to us, the most important thing he did was get the conscientious objectors out of jail, uh, withdraw the troops, and uh, the whole Vietnam War thing was was what we had been concentrating on for the previous five or six years. And then, of course, the the other things that he did, and and Whitlam's always incredibly proud of this, he got the women's contraceptive pill onto the PBS and he keeps saying, I did that on my first day in office and no one ever talks about it. (laughs) And it's because he did like a dozen other things that were even more amazing. But it's it's really astonishing now to read the things that happened just in that first three weeks. It, it, mm. it, was, it was quite wow. extraordinary. Um, but, but long term, I think the, um, the difference in policy towards Indigenous Australians was the thing that I 
loved best. So so the things like free university and um, because I we of course all had to pay unless we got scholarship, mm. yeah, and that made much, a, yeah. that made a huge difference to who your students were because I was teaching at Macquarie in the seventies, and suddenly there was this huge input of middle aged women who had been denied the right to go to university by their parents. You know, the, the boys had been sent off to uni and the girls weren't. And suddenly these middle-aged women came to uni and they were my best students by far because mm. they were so conscientious and they were so determined to use their chance now that they'd got it. See, it's really interesting to hear that these things that I, you know, like I said, I've come for granted, I suppose, now with what, I assume is just basic in a, in a well-functioning society. So it's interesting to hear that this was the opposition coming into that election at the time. Like that, there means that it means that there were people who were opposed to these, you know, ideas. I suppose. And I guess back then it would have been the whole. I don't know how close to the Cold War and the whole evil, um, you know, communist Russia ideas that was sitting in the zeitgeist was, but. Um, I suppose that definitely had a bit of an influence on it. I don't know if that was 80s or 60s. Or Again, history to me is so broad, I kind of all right. lump it into like, into one thing. So I'm probably a bit inaccurate there, but yeah. I feel like, I feel like the things that Whitlam brought in were not even things that people maybe had ever had contemplated before. Like I feel like he was mm. quite revolutionary. And it's so fascinating. Talking about the students, and sorry to divert, I'll come back, but I was talking to somebody this week who was saying that they know a lady who was in her 20s in the 70s and um, had been told when she was in high school, don't bother using your intelligence for anything. You're just going to go and have babies and, you know, mm. it's, it doesn't mean a thing. And then after Whitlam came in and enabled people to be able to go to university for free, she did. And now she's one of the most renowned cancer scientists that are out there, you know, just power mind. And it's his reform that enabled that, which I think is really cool. Yeah. You know, I was talking to my um, my in-laws about Whitlow this week and they had nothing good to say about him. Hmm. So they were like, he was a good for nothing. He didn't do anything for this, you know, country, blah, blah, blah. And I think, you know, he had that such a short period of time that, like, I love that this book's coming out because he could easily be forgotten, really, for the things that he did in such a short period of time, couldn't he? Because wasn't he only in for one term, I believe? Not even. He won two terms. There was another election in 74 that he was forced to an election because of the way that the Senate was behaving. And as Jenny says in that interview, yeah, that was the he wins two elections him. in three years, yeah, and the governor general still sacks him, yeah, which is why the dismissal so over it, it, there's this cloud over the Whitlam government, yeah. But, but what he did was actually extraordinary. I mean, lowering the voting age, well, um, yes. You know why that why that happened was um, Menzies had brought in conscription for overseas service at first time. So young Australian boys were being sent off to kill and be killed overseas and they didn't even have the right to vote because yeah. the voting age was 21. So do you know how they got around that? They gave the vote to those um, conscripts who were serving overseas. Didn't give it to us but gave it to the conscripts and so it was just an absurdity. So by the time yeah. we got in, there were so many things that needed fixing. We'd had 23 years of very conservative rule. There was huge censorship. There was the attitude to 
Aboriginal people was that they must assimilate and that we should smooth the pillow of the dying race. I mean, it was awful stuff. Um, and the attitude to women was terrible. Look, it was, I can remember it. It was, but most of all, it was boring. It was a very, very stultifying time. And Meredith, how does it compare to what was going on globally? Because you look at the 70s and, you know, you think the hippies and the, you know, bra burning and so forth. So was he like a hippie? Was he that forward-thinking person? Is that what made him like this? Or was he sort of a going along with the rest of the world and the theme that was happening at the time? Like how do you see that? Whitlam was an incredible thinker. He was very, very clever. Um, he was a lawyer, wasn't he, a solicitor or something? I think he was uh, a QC. Yeah, okay. yeah. But he, he was a, a great student of history. He loved talking about, you know, what had happened in the Balkans and <laughs> all those things. He wanted to – he was an activist prime minister. And there's a sense in which, like, Albo doesn't have Whitlam's panache or even his learning – but Albo is going to be an activist prime minister. He is going to want to change things. And that was the really interesting thing about Whitlam. That first couple of weeks where he and his deputy were sworn in and they just did so many things um, in that, you know, they got the conscripts out of jail within a day. Wow. And, they, and they, you know, brought the troops home, stopped the war in Australia's participation in the war, it was really important to us. Well, I just think, you know, he passed away in 2014 mm. and I don't know if there was much fanfare about it, but I had to I had to look up the date that he passed away because I don't remember it. I didn't even know he was dead. There you he go. Had a, he had a terrific, a terrific funeral um, and some of the best speeches I've ever heard, particularly from Noel Pearson, who, who made a, a really great speech. He, um, he was one of the longest-serving politicians of all time, or I think he is, in that he was in politics right through until his 90s. Uh, he left Parliament after 1977. But he was still involved in the Labor Party. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, through until his 90s, I believe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. longest-serving member of the Labor Party. Perhaps that's what it is that I'm trying yeah. to say. He used to turn up at um, events and I, I used to consider myself terribly lucky because often I sat next to him. And he loved a good joke and he all loved gossip, loved gossip. He was absolutely obsessed by the Bogle Chandler murders. And he used to say, oh, Meredith, your, your father was in CSIRO. Now, who do you think did it? <laughs> a very funny man. I read um, somebody say he was the most paradoxical of all the prime ministers in the last half of the 20th century. I thought that was just such a bold statement. So cool. He spent a long time reforming the Labor Party and working out what policies the Labor Party should have. He also had an excellent front bench. He had really clever people on there, people like Lionel Murphy and Kep Enderby and, you know, his even Paul Keating was in there and was a minister right. just towards the end. Do you think the um, values that he definitely he put into the Labor Party when he was in power kind of stay true today with the Labor Party? A lot of, of what he wanted to do was make it more open and more understandable and more transparent. Yeah. Um, there had been a lot of ways in which the inner workings of the Labor Party were pretty opaque and you, you really didn't know what was going on. And he, he tried to make it much more public and much more open. And that's that was a really good reform. Do you see it hold true to today, though? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
the Labor Party, um, unlike some of the smaller parties, uh, you know, the policy is made at, a, at an open forum that the press are invited to and the Labor Party is as transparent as any of the parties. Much mm. more than the Greens, who used to have closed closed conferences for many years, wouldn't yeah. let the media in. I think aren't um, most of the like things where they discuss policy, again, I'm relatively new to the whole idea of politics so I only started researching just how politics works in general, I suppose, from the most recent election. And so I think like there like a lot of um, discussions and stuff are live streamed now as well. So you can tune into, you know, looking at how actual laws are being passed and stuff in real time, or even if not in real time, you can look at the um, documents and stuff that they're they're passing online like as you know as instantaneously as parliament's very uh open now yeah well i suppose a lot more than it was even just televising parliament uh was one of the whitlam um yeah i wrote a list of all of the things that i could find about it and i was just blown away so um homeless welfare payments welfare benefits i remember mum always talking about family benefits when i was a kid so clearly he started that legal aid medicare Aboriginal land rights, China relations, national film and television school, national gallery, overseas aid, financial aid to government schools, the voting age lowered to 18, grants for local government, the floods and um, urban renewal and leisure and tourism and so forth, community health services, regional hospitals. Um, he He's the one who made Advance Australia Fair um, instead of God Save the Queen. Oh, cool. Um, no fault divorce divorces, the family court, eliminating racial discrimination. And like that wasn't everything. That was just like yeah. a page worth of stuff. It, Amazing. It, it blows your head off, really. Um and and as was I said in the interview with Jenny, his um refreshing attitude towards the arts was so important. Um uh, Lex Marinos was put, talking about how just his support of uh, drama and theatre and, and film. Um, I think he actually even appeared in one of the films. Oh, he, wow. he, uh, he was incredibly supportive of the arts. And, I and love that course, story where he rocked up and people applauded him and I just thought that was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, um, Lockie, you didn't even know that he had died because yeah. there was a huge outpouring of grief, really, when mm. he died from... Well, when was it, 2014? Yeah, I was only 15, so. Oh, you're forgiven for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we didn't learn about prime ministers in school anyway. It's like they don't teach Fine. us about how politics works, like upper, lower house, et cetera. They didn't teach us. Because I know in America they make you, like, memorise every president, whereas. <laughs> I, I went know, to high school in America and you have to pass American history to be mm. able to get into year 12. Wow. Yeah. Whereas here, like. You know, we, I just remember, you know, bits of like we'll learn like a little bit of Aboriginal history and then like a little bit of World War II history and and then, you know. The it's, bush it's, rangers. It's all the bush rangers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all scattered and it's nothing. I don't retain anything of interest that, you know, you don't see in pop culture, whereas now I hear names here and there of like old prime ministers, you know, like um, uh, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, Gough Whitlam, um, See, that's probably all I could name. From- did you did you know about Robert Menzies? Oh, I had I had heard um, Menzies before as well. Because he was he's our longest serving prime minister. Oh, it's and not he- John Howard. No. Oh, okay. See, no, that, this Robert is what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and Menzies was a paternalistic old colonialist. 
you know, he wanted us to get involved in a war with Egypt over the Suez Canal. I cannot tell you how bad he was. Um, right. and, and he, of course, committed our troops to Vietnam and brought back conscription. And and I wouldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for what Robert Menzies did because I became totally politicised mm. uh, through the Vietnam War issue. Well, I'd like to pipe up and just remind us that one of the things that uh, the Whitlam government in- introduced was community radio, which mm. is very important for this show because uh, – we we are broadcast uh, into community radio stations around Australia, and it's how my interest in broadcasting began in the in the mid seventies. So I, I'm I'm what for all the all the wonderful things that I have to be grateful for Whitlam for. One of them is affecting me still to this day, and that's the introduction oh, wow. of community radio to this country. So he had he had terrific ministers who who had spent the last 20 years thinking, when we get into power, we'll do this, this and this, and then they eventually get there and they do it all in three years. Well, we, have, uh, we haven't really got three years. We've only got a limited amount of time for uh, Jeff's Cafe, uh, hmm. but uh, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us uh, in this discussion on the Whitlam legacy 50 years after the election of the Whitlam government in 1972. Meredith Bergman from Sydney, a, ba- a baby boomer, Lockie Hilda, Jen Zeta Zuma, uh, also from Sydney, and Laurelin from Ichuka, a Gen Xa. Thanks very much for joining us in Jeff's Cafe. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Jeff. Bye, Laurelin. Bye, Oscar. See you guys. Bye. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. I am so proud and honoured to introduce our Nostalgia Town guest today, That's the one, the only, Judy Stone AM, who's an Australian pop and country music singer. For much of the 60s, she was a regular on Bandstand, where her duets with Culture and me became a popular feature of the show. We did duets too, didn't we? Her musical collaboration with Culture and the Joy Boys included a two-month tour of Japan and just about everywhere in Australia. Her first national hit was I'll Step Down, in 1962, and her biggest seller was Would You Lay With Me in 1974. And we mustn't forget 4,3221 tears from now. Or is it yeah. beers? <laughs> on the Queen's Birthday Honours list of June 2006, Judy was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for her entertainment and her charity work. The biggest welcome, Judy. How are you? I'm very well, darling. It's so lovely to talk to you. Not that we don't yeah. talk very often. I know. We have very long phone calls. And, you know, here's another mate that uh, I know you'd like this fella very much. His name's Lex Marinos and he's Little a Little Lex, fan. Judy, they call me. They call me Little Lex. <laughs> and there are reasons for that, which I'm not going into. Uh, but what I'm curious about is, who is the littlest of you and Patty? Um... It's almost... Little Patty is. Oh, it's oh, okay. about a dead and were, you, were you ever tempted to be Little Judy? <laughs> no, I, I don't know why, but you know what? I am four foot ten and a half in the old measurements, and I still am. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that my darling friend there was only four foot nine and a bit. You towered over her. <laughs> but, you know, we all cheated, Judy and I in particular, we had the best, highest heels, which we loved. <laughs> and then you get to a stage in life, and the women listening will know this, that 
you just can't wear them that high anymore. And I am very pleased to say I inherited from Judy gave me some of her biggest, highest heels that she couldn't wear anymore, and I can still wear them. Oh, well, that's that's good to know. And, and Patty, I've taken your advice. I wear sensible flatties and, and a, <laughs> you know, occasionally a court heel um, if a I'm going heel. out. But uh, <laughs> generally flatties and, and it suits me fine. Ah, uh, we're all into flatties. Judy, we want to find out a little bit more about you. I know most of it, but where did you grow up? Well, actually, I, I was born in the summer, summer Hill on New mm. Year's Day, 1941, but um, lived in Newtown till I was about five. Ah. So, uh, eldest, eldest of three girls, and I went to uh, Australia Street School in Newtown, which was mm-hmm. a fabulous name of the school because all of our family were always passionate about our sunburn country. And uh, it was in kindergarten that I graduated from the triangle, mm-hmm. playing the triangle, <laughs> to a plastic ukulele. And then later on, my mum's straw broom. So I was always wanting to play music or sing music. When did you get your first big guitar, real guitar? When we moved to Granville, um, after I was about five, I went to um, Blackfoot Street School. And there, um, well, what happened was my my dad knew that I wanted to play music. So he, in, uh, he what he did was there was a Beresford School of Music, and he enrolled my sister, Joyce, and me, Joyce on the banjo, and me on the guitar. Mm-hmm. And but unfortunately, it was a steel pedal guitar, and I didn't want that. I wanted to be a cowgirl straight away. But that was my very first guitar. And Judy, when did you realise that uh, that this was something not something just something that you were interested in, but that there might be something that you would pursue as a career? Do you remember when that happened? Well, I was always passionate about it. Lex, you know, I mean, there was always singing in our house. It didn't matter where, what it was, Mario Lanza or whoever or Doris Day, where there was always singing. And when I was at Blackfoot Street School, my school teacher was a Mr. McLean. And I think that was the very beginning for me because Mr. McLean was the father of Joy and Heather McLean. Oh, Slim Dusty. And Heather married Reg Lindsay. So one day I took my guitar to school where I was allowed to do that when it was raining and we couldn't play sports. And um, I was singing and Mr. McLean suggested and went down to see my mum and dad and said that I should go and see Heather McLean who worked at the Alert Radio in Parramatta. And actually, from there on, the rest is really history. In the school holidays, I was on the Reg Lindsay show. And then later on, that led to Cole Joy show. That led to Bandstand. So really, way back at Granville was the beginning, I think, of my career. It, so much happened so quickly at the beginning of, well, I know my career and your career too. Can you remember the very first time you met Cold Joy, what was it like? Well, actually, my dad took us down to the uh, stadium that used to be at White City mm-hmm. and performing down there, and that's the first time I'd ever seen him. I mean, little did I realise, darling, that one day we'd be sharing the stage. Mm-hmm. When there was an agent, and you may, may remember this man called Ted Quigg. Sure do. He knocked on my door because I was winning a few little, um, you know, little singing on the back of trucks and Hollywood Park, I won a talent quest, and he... Um, heard me on the Reg Lindsay show and and said to my mum and dad, I'm putting a show on at Camden with Cole Joy. Well, we nearly mm-hmm. fell over. He said, I'd like Judy to 
sing a couple of songs. So it was at Camden. It would have been, oh, well before Bandstand, well before. It would have been probably 1960. And then that, of course, and then then I went on Bandstand, actually failed my first audition audition on Bandstand because I sang and yodelled and they weren't ready for that then. then. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't they silly? But really, I know, and I yodel so well. But um, <laughs> it was after singing a bit, particularly with Reg, where I was starting to sing a little bit more Patsy Cline-type songs, that it mm. was actually the Flanagans, and you remember them, oh, Patricia. Yes. Mm, yeah, yep. And it was Margaret Flanagan who said, Johnny O'Keefe is doing auditions. Come down and sing for Johnny O'Keefe. And it was I was on Johnny O'Keefe's show before Bandstand. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, because. Johnny heard me and said, don't bring your guitar. Mm. I gave me a Brenda Lee song called um, I'm Sorry. You know, I'm sorry, that one. So sorry. sorry. Please accept my apology. That's it. What a song. And I remember hearing Judy sing that when I first started and I was mesmerised. I thought, oh, and she's almost crying when she sings. It was so emotional and beautiful. Thanks, Judy. Those bandstand days are fantastically nostalgic. And I, I mean, I remember, you know, the family, we would sit around the black and white telly and wait for bandstand to come on of a Saturday evening. And it was it was fantastic. And, and Judy, I'm curious, if, given your initial inclination was towards country music, did you find adapting to the heavier kind of rock and roll, not that it was that heavy, but, but that style of music suited you as well? Yes, mm. I did, actually, because... People that I admired, like Connie Francis, uh, Brenda Lee, particularly Brenda Lee, uh, who was tiny. She was even tinier than you, Patricia. Little Brenda. And she could sing stuff like, well, actually, the first appearance on the Johnny O'Keefe show I did, um, I'm Sorry, and the second one was Jambalaya. And that was sort of poppy type. And I think that sort of introduced me to the, I could never... I mean, I'd always loved to have been a Rene Gay or a real belty out type one, but it wouldn't have suited me. But I loved the ballads, I loved the country, and I loved the sort of a bit boppy rock and roll. And it's terrific because throughout your career, you've had all of those opportunities to sing those kind of songs, ballads, rock, country, all so well. And, you know, in Australia, it's kind of how it is, isn't it, Judy? You must learn to be to do everything to be versatile. I think we had good grounding, though. I, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, Judy, but how lucky were we to have toured as often as we did with great musicians, Cole always at the helm and terrific audiences, uh, culminating in probably one of the best tours for Australian performers We uh, was long way to the top. Did you love doing that too? Yes, I did. But, you know what, getting back to Cole, uh, what I learned from the Cole Joy days was that you just didn't get up there and sing, that you had to relate to the audience and you had mm. to be an entertainer. And that was something that I took with me that I learned from Colin. The mm. audience have to feel that you're one of them, which you are, but you bring up little things that they'd be aware of. And Cole was was doing that, wasn't he? Oh, he was great. A great storyteller. But you know what? We're getting back to what you said about long way to the top because you know that we always had to – it was very rough on the road in the early days, wasn't it? You know, we'd Mm. have to get iron our clothes and do our makeup, but long way to the top 
That's what I thought. Now, this is what real famous people do. Remember we had the dresser that would take our clothes and hang them up in the truck? That's right. In our (laughs) room. We we thought that was fabulous, didn't we? Five-star accommodation. Very nice. Now, look, that's enough of this. That's enough of this. (laughs) I I, I don't mean to be controversial, Uh, but... But I do have to introduce a serious note into this, and I'm I'm reliably informed, Judy, that when little Patty mm-hmm. came along, there was a great rivalry between you two, and that she was notoriously <laughs> difficult and a prima donna, and she <laughs> threw things in the dressing room, and even at 14, <laughs> Patricia, Patricia, <laughs> she was notoriously difficult to work with, <laughs> and that's remained the case, I have to say, um, and she was just uh, behaved appallingly. That's what I've heard. <laughs> Oh, listen here, Your Honour, I have this once and for all. Little Patricia, when we were doing Long Way to the Top, um, I sat up with her and she taught me mm. how to knit. How groovy is that? <laughs> Without dropping a stitch. One pearl, one plane. And a few rules were broken too that a particular small person, me, did quite a bit of cooking mm. in uh, accommodation that wasn't meant to be cooked in. Oh, see, these are the these are the road stories mm. that just don't get told. The funny thing about it, in the early days, um, the Joy Boys and that may have wanted to get thrown out at some times because they were up late. I thought we were going to get thrown out of the, one of the top hotels because that little lady that used <laughs> <laughs> was idea could she cook up a storm? But I think some of the flavours, like maybe a curry, might have given it away. You could, <laughs> I mean, but wow, it was. <laughs> I could smell it in the next town. <laughs> tools with her, her cooking tools and saucepans and oh dear, but you know what? Yeah, and and she notoriously got stuck into the into the um, strawberry flavouring, didn't she? <laughs> The cordial, the raspberry cordial, I've heard Patricia used to knock it over like going out of style. Uh, Judy, would you like to tell them, I know I instigated it, but would you like to tell the listeners the story of us being three very game young women when we missed the bus into town in Canberra? Our accommodation was an hour out of Canberra and we thought, oh, I've got to get in and buy some food because we've got the night off and I'll cook. And we had no way of getting there. So what did we do, Judy? Oh, listen, hang on. You've got me now for a second. We didn't barbecue it, did we? No, we hitched a ride with a truck driver. Oh, come on. (laughs) I know we were called the Chucky Babes. Well, it was. We missed the bus and what would we do? And I thought, do you know, I always think that truck drivers are fabulous and incredibly helpful. Of course, we had the candelabra. Yep. And yeah. that was afterwards, but we, we did hitch a ride in a truck to get to Canberra. And then after, I know these are silly stories, but they mean a lot to us. Um, on Towards the end of the tour, the truck drivers and that particular lot of crew, of whom there were many, didn't get to eat with us. And we really thought the world of them. So yeah. we invited them to eat with us and we set up a candelabra etc and we bought beautiful wine for them and treated them like the kings that we thought they were so they uh, were the truckies that we looked after as well what on our dressing room door because mm-hmm. we used to share there was the trucky babes That's and our right. names underneath it i've still got all of that and the photograph of the guys and us sitting around with the candelabra for them <laughs> honestly it's it was fantastic, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. we could be. Uh. There's another story with Dinah and you and I, and we mm. used to love shopping. Mm. And we ever had an afternoon off. Oh, we got 
early we would go shopping and then after we did that, we had to go back and do a radio program. And the mm. guy said, and what do you do when you have a bit of time? I said, well, you know that we're alcoholic shoppers. <laughs> I meant to say shopaholics. Mm, mm. And, and I said alcoholics. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought, well, there we go. We're into the rock and roll. We're up there now in the rock and roll fame with all the blokes. Ah, rock and roll lifestyle, absolutely. <laughs> and and uh, and I believe you used to share an aspirin. Oh, an aspirin. We're big on the aspirins, of course. Now, do you know, I'm I'm thrilled to say that we had pretty clean living when we were on the road and um, we missed out on the drug scene and the bad heavy drinking scene. I think we were very fortunate, don't you, Judy? Well, I don't think we would have got a gig because I know that it's all right for blokes to do that, but I think for ladies to turn up drunk or out of it, um, I don't think that would ever happen really. No, no. Do you know of anyone? I don't. No, I don't don't either. Uh, We were... We had to really, we always wanted to do another gig, didn't we? The next gig. The sense of being professional was uh, well and truly entrenched in us. What kind of music do you listen to now, Judy? Oh, look, it's really, I love all sorts. I mean, when we we were growing up, we had sort of an eclectic taste. But it was my Uncle Bill that sort of introduced me to classic music. And we didn't have a lot of money. We lived in a housing commission. And he would take us girls to see uh, the ballet, um, a bit of, not so much the opera. That would have been a bit heavy. But classic music, classical music now, uh, for about the last 20 years, or even a bit longer, particularly as I've had a bit of illness, that has been really my saviour. I absolutely, mm. whether it's Yo-Yo Ma on the cello or whether it's, you know, just listening to Dame Joan Sutherland doing a duet with Marilyn Horne, it just absolutely riches my life beyond, I can't tell you, beyond my wildest dreams. Mm. It's funny how we change how, as we get older, our Catholic broader tastes come into being. And indeed our Protestant runs as well. Mm. Apart from, obviously, music, what other influences did you have growing up? Did you go to the movies a lot? Did you watch a lot of TV? Did you read? What What else did you do? Growing up, no, all my life was in show business from about the age of 11 or 12. And that's why I really, I mean, and, and you know, Patty, you don't, Patricia, you, you'd know this. There was no time to join the tennis club. You no. think we our whole lives, and you were only 14. I mean, mm. it just revolved around going on tours and working. And mm. our our show business family, that's all we had, really. If we and were lucky great. the movies, we did a few times, actually, with Renee Gayer and you and I. We went to the movies and diner. But I had absolutely... No social life growing up at all. I can say the same. And that's why it's so important for me now. I remember when I had to retire, and which is a little bit sad. If you if you feel the time's up, you think that's it. But when you're forced to, it's a bit of a shock because your whole life just evolved around the next gig, the tours, your piano player, you know, um, working mm. out and and all of a sudden you're not doing anything. And that was mm. a shock to me. Yeah. Hey, Judy, you. I know that you, one of your most favourite hobbies, and I know you're very, very good at it, is playing mahjong. Oh, listen, I played at least three times a week. I'd play it more if I could. But um, I'm very excited now because a group of girls that I played for, they decided I oh, played with, they thought they might go on to, um, you know, something else. And uh, so I thought, well, that's no good. 
So I ended up teaching nearly all my street in Kent Gardens how to play Mahjong. And now we've got the Kent Gardens Mahjong Club. Uh, That's very important. We have a a mantra, a little thing we say on our show, which, you know, as we're all maturing and retiring, etc., it's get connected and stay connected. And that's obviously what you've done. I know you've, you have a wonderful family, two other beautiful sisters. And, and a brother-in-law. With, and that's just, right. Yeah, honestly, a very close family. That's good. And you've got your mahjong and life's pretty good, isn't it, in retirement? It is really. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. Um, I was going, after I retired, I was going past and I saw Croquet Club up here at Nelson Bay. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I drove around and I saw the group of ladies playing it and, and the men and I thought, I'll have a go at that. Now, I loved that for two years until my arthritis got a bit bad. But because uh. of that, I met a group of people and because of them, I learned how to play Mahjong. I learned how to do bonsai. So it kind of, if you do something and you take that effort to join one thing, you can branch out. You know, we have a, a, a meeting, not a meeting, but we have a get-together once a month and we mm. all bring food and, and we get we take a turnaround at people's places. We decide whether we want to go to the Maitland Repertoire Theatre there or we want to go to the movies. You have to have a social outlet. Well, you've just inspired a whole lot more listeners, Judy. I hope you realise that. You're inspiring everybody uh, about what's good about retirement, what's good about reflecting with your mates and remembering good times. It's been really lovely to have you on the program. And I know that you and I will talk again very soon. And wasn't it great, Lex? Oh, absolutely. And Judy, let me take this opportunity to Thank you so much for the many, many hours and uh, of just wonderful enjoyment and entertainment. Thank you so much. Actually, it's a pleasure talking to you, Lex. Lex, now listen, Patricia. Yes, I know that people are listening. <laughs> probably a lot of the people in my age just want to share with them mm-hmm. because that we were growing up, it was pounds, shillings, and pence. It was, and it was pounds, shillings, pence, and it was feet and inches. And do you know I sew, as you know I sew, and knit, yes, and I, true, yep. I don't even know. I can't tell you what 10 centimetres is, but I can tell you what two inches is. I own, I still think in inches and feet, so how old am I? I want to share this with you, listeners, because it may bring back some memories. I was talking on stage once. And I was saying that my uncle gave me a trippance to sing. Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were in those, they were. So this man came backstage and he gave me this note and I, I absolutely adore him. Adore so this is for all your listeners. He said mm. his father gave him a Drina for a haircut. It was also called a bob or a shilling or two zacks or four trays or a zack and two trays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the haircut was ninepence or a zack or three trays. And he used to let me spend the tray left over for a truppany ice cream. Now, the dinner was 12 pennies <laughs> or 24 halfpennies. And mm. when the dollar came in, it would buy you 14 middies of beer. Today, <gasps> it would 
buy you oh. a spoon of beer. Now, how about that to end the whole program? Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, <laughs> what goodness. a great, that's a good little story. That's a big story. I remember pound shillings and pence and then ah, we went to dollars yeah. and I had Very no sense. funny. <laughs> hey, Judy, thank you so, so much. And you and I will have a mag on the phone another time soon. Thank we you. We will, darling. I love you heaps. And, yeah, and, much uh, love I to you. I want to wish all your listeners a very happy and social life. Much love to you. I'm sure they would return the wishes. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you. See ya. Thanks, darling. Thank you very See much. See you, Jude. Bye, Elsa. Bye. 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 And now it's time for Money Extra where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. In this Money Extra episode, we talk about the vulnerability of older adults to gambling harm. Each year, Australians lose around $2.6 billion on pokies alone, with the over 65s having the highest participation rates in pokies, kino and lotto. Seniors are lured to gambling venues by the offer of cheap meals, free entertainment and free shuttle buses. A focus group from the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation revealed that seniors often attend these pubs and clubs to escape loneliness and find social connections. So, is this a problem? That, of course, depends upon the individual. For some, it's a harmless and occasional bit of fun, and they only spend what they can afford. For others, a gambling addiction can develop, and with it the potential for devastating consequences to their lives. Dr Charles Livingston, a gambling researcher at Monash University, says that stressful life situations, such as social isolation, financial hardship, mental health and other stressors, can lead to addictive gambling. That addiction can then aggravate those pre-existing concerns. How can you tell if you are at risk? If you can't stop thinking about gambling, are spending increasing time and money on it, or you're spending money that's needed for household necessities to finance gambling, then you need to consider seeking help. If you or someone you care about is at risk, support can be found at gamblinghelponline.org.au. This has been David Tunnicliffe for Baby Boomer's Guide, Money Extra. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations, and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. Today we're stepping out to Brisbane to meet Gary Thorpe OAM, who's the General Manager of 4MBS Classic FM and has been since 1989. He was in fact a founder of the community radio station which launched way back in 1979. As well as 4MBS, Gary runs a nostalgia station, Silver Memories, and I can't wait to hear about that. Silver Memories brings music to aged communities and plays a role in addressing social isolation. Gary was awarded a Pro Bono Impact 25 Award in 2022 for Silver Memories and a Churchill Fellowship in 2011 to research the use of music in the management of dementia. Hi, Gary. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Hello. Gary, you've been involved in community radio for more than four decades. How have things changed in that time at 4MBS? Well, when we started, uh, Patricia, we had LPs, uh, so we had two mm-hmm. turntables and a reel-to-reel tape recorder, uh, and that was it. Uh, and we had about 30 or 40 volunteers, and most of us had uh, full-time jobs. So we would start our radio station at 6 a.m., close it at uh, 9 and then go off to work and then mm-hmm. come back and rev it up again at 6 p.m. and go through to midnight. So, um, But now 
43 years uh, later, of course, uh, there's a lot of uh, digital uh, aspects involved. There's, uh, we still have CDs here um, mm -hmm. and we've got about 350 volunteers and we're 24 hour a day, every day sort of thing. So a lot of uh, changes, but the thing that has stayed the same is the passion that we have. I'm probably as excited about uh, 4MBS and what we do now as when we started uh, 43 years ago. So I suppose that's that's a major achievement in itself. Gary, I, I know I know Patricia's very keen to hear some more about Silver Memories, but can we just stay with MBS for a moment? Because I'm aware that that's there's a network of MBS or fine music stations throughout Australia. Do you have much connection with the other, with two MBS FM, with three MBS FM? Do you is there much trade between the the various stations? Lex, we're pretty much independent and self-sustaining, we contribute to a program on the community radio network, which goes to air on Sundays, where we put up uh, concerts that we each station has recorded. It's called Fine Music Live, so they're live concerts. So we all contribute to that on a rotational basis. Uh, we're on the phone to each other fairly regularly because we're pretty much, we've all got the same ideals and the same aims to bring uh, classical music uh, to everyone, make it accessible. Um, so we do uh, talk regularly. Uh, up before COVID, we used to get together at each radio station about every three or four months or so and talk over uh, various ideas mm -hmm. and uh, that sort of thing. Um, but I'd have to say that um, as a network, we're a fairly loose alliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I understand. Yeah. Your station is well known to classical music lovers in Queensland, but uh, please tell us more about your offshoot, Silver Memories. What is it and how is the music distributed? Yes, Patricia, Silver Memories has been around for about uh, 15 years now. Uh, it started basically because our next-door neighbour had a stroke and she ended up in an aged care home. We used to visit her and after about... So almost six months, we really noticed that she was fading and uh, withdrawing. And it was because at that time there was very little sort of to engage her in the aged care home. She was bedridden in, a, in bed and uh, she wasn't a big fan of uh, television, didn't, wasn't interested in sport or whatever. Um, so I got talking to her and she said her mind was back to when she was young and being courted by her mm -hmm. husband who... She lost in the Second World War at the fall of Singapore. So her mind was back in the late 1930s, early 1940s. So I thought if we start a radio station uh, that plays music from the 1930s, 40s and 50s, uh, that would in interest her and engage her. Uh, and as it turned out, it, uh, it did. So we started uh, distributing the radio service by uh, putting the programs, 24-hour-a-day programs out on a sub-carrier frequency of our FM signal. There was no FM frequency available in Brisbane and uh, the last one that was auctioned off by the federal authorities for about $50 million. So oh, dear. Yeah, we didn't have a spare 50 mil. <laughs> we didn't have a spare 50,000. Um, anyway, uh, we decided to put a, a room in the our facility here and build a little studio and start uh, broadcasting uh, nostalgia music. Uh, and then 
uh, after a while, uh, there was some attention by the local print media. An article was published and uh, in the Korea Mail and we got calls from all over the state and calls from interstate saying, can we hear this service? Uh, so we realised we needed to be able to uh, do more than just transmit mm. just to Brisbane. Uh, so by that time, we had a good team of uh, volunteer announcers uh, and we were really getting a lot of calls from aged care homes saying our residents would love this. Uh, so I had a chat at a function that I was at to a philanthropist called Tim Fairfax. He's a wonderful mm -hmm. philanthropist, he and his wife um, and his family. They're all um, terrific supporters of social issues and the arts in particular. Um, so Tim said, what do, you, what do you need to get this? And I, in a throwaway line, said, oh, it'd be great if we had a satellite service so we can get all okay. over Australia. And he said, uh, give me a call tomorrow. And he funded the satellite. Oh, wow, fantastic. Wow. So it's, um, it's available anywhere in Australia via satellite. It's in just on 200 aged care homes now. And they put, put it through to the rooms in their TV sets. So they yeah. can bring it up on the TV yeah. on a dedicated channel. Uh, and then it occurred to us that if we're going through a TV, it would be nice if we had some images. Uh, so at the moment, we provide about 5,000 images on a memory stick and they plug it into a little media player and they come up on the TV screen. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes the images might be about um, great uh, music stars of the, the past. Uh, never know, you might be in there, Patricia, uh, <laughs> in your younger days. I think we've got a photo of you. Uh, it comes up on the screen of great Aussie stars um, mm -hmm. and also images of... Um, botanic gardens and countrysides and mm. um, lovely photos of some of the kitchen appliances from the, the past. And it just brings back <laughs> sort of memories, particularly when some of the younger staff in aged care walk in and look at the picture and say, what on earth is that? <laughs> yes. Gary, you're with Silver Memories. Has that been influenced by the Churchill Fellowship that you took to study the relationship between music and dementia. Does that research feed into Silver Memories? Yes, very much, uh, Lex. Uh, the Silver Memories um, research project uh, through the Churchill Fellowship enabled me to visit, there was eight centres, so I recommend you don't do more than six, but I was, you know, so taken by some of the research uh, done in various uh, locations around the world that I visited eight centres that were working in a reminiscence therapy, it's called. So mm -hmm. music is a very powerful reminiscence tool. So there's a lot of research happening around the world uh, using music. And also there's research using photographs, old photos and, and uh, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of uh, research taking place about reminiscence therapy. Uh, interestingly, and this is often the case with Churchill uh, Fellowships, um, you find by going overseas that uh, maybe you're actually a world leader in this because they were fascinated mm. by the fact that we'd started a mm. entire radio station built around reminiscence therapy. Um, yeah, so they said, amazing, you're actually doing what we're researching to see if it will work. Uh, so we, we jumped in and uh, got it happening. Uh, and the Churchill Fellowship also... Um, enabled me, Lex, to make some really good contacts with researchers. 
And if something pops up that they think I'd be interested in, they they send me a link to a, a research paper or things like that. So it's constantly uh, evolving. Uh, and the it's interesting you mentioned the Churchill Fellowship because they've actually now got a scheme where we can apply for some funds to help further the uh, outcomes of okay. the research project. So I'm busily working on that at the moment to uh, try and get some funds to help upgrade an app. Uh, we've got a Silver Memories app. We're terribly modern. We've got a Silver Memories app now. <laughs> oh, and, get you with yeah, you and your app. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that was a very steep learning curve, I could tell you. Okay. Um, yeah, and um, it's compatible for iPads because we want the images to be big enough for people to yeah, see yeah, them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, course. but um, now every you know, second person says, can I get it on my iPhone? So we're looking at making it compatible for smaller devices uh, so they can access fantastic. Uh, the service. Oh, Gary, there's so much going on in your life. It's marvellous. Please tell us about the 4MBS Festival of Classics because – I think you've been running that since 1994. I think that'll be right. Yeah, 29 years. So it's the 30th year next year. Wow. Yeah, so it started in 1994 just in the local area around where the radio station is located. It's in the south side of Brisbane, Cooparoo. Uh, and I saw that the Brisbane City Council were offering grants for mm. some local festivals so I applied and we got it and then we had to put on a festival because I had the money to do it. But it was only $2,000, but 29 years ago that was reasonable. Oh, it. <laughs> so we put on half a dozen concerts in one weekend with the symphony orchestra, choirs, oh. chamber musicians, uh, solo pianists, a uh, bit of opera, and everything sold out. So we thought, well, we'll have to do it again next year and we've been doing that every year now for 29 years. It's got bigger and bigger. We regularly have 25 or 30 concerts over about three weeks, sometimes about 600 musicians um, in the various uh, ensembles, wow. so it's uh, massive. And are these concerts that you record, or do you broadcast them as well? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we yeah, record excellent. them and uh, put them up on the satellite yeah. where we can. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about the Festival of Classics is that we only use local performers. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, it's just Queenslanders. Uh, it's designed as a platform for uh, professional and emerging uh, performers, mm. uh, and it's turned out to be a really good uh, stepping stone for mm. performers who maybe can't, um, because they're unknown, can't mm. get um, a job with the opera company or the symphony orchestra. Yeah. So we're sort of like a staging post yeah. for them. So we give them the chance to be a soloist with a in a concerto with a symphony orchestra. Wow. Now that's a wonderful opportunity, which they just wouldn't be able to walk through the door of the Queensland yeah. Symphony Orchestra and say, can I play the Beethoven violin concerto with the orchestra? Just <laughs> not going to happen. Um, so we provide them the opportunity to do that. Um, we've had some really wonderful success stories there's a beautiful soprano called jessica pratt now um one of my staff is a former opera singer from the uk and uh, she taught jessica and she came to me and said i think we should give jessica a chance in the festival and uh, as we were doing a mozart festival eight years so about 30 concerts of mozart so 
we got her to sing the Queen of the Night aria from Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute. It's the most difficult aria mm. in all of opera. Yeah. Mm. And uh, the, the thinking is that Mozart didn't like sopranos, so he, <laughs> he wrote this extraordinarily difficult aria uh, for them to torture them, in other words. And uh, she sang this and the audience were on their feet, standing ovation. Oh, how beautiful. The, the orchestra gave her an ovation and she had this huge beaming smile. Uh, we filmed the concert. It's, it's glorious. And within about five years, we also gave her a role in a um, cut-down version of another Mozart opera uh, mm. that we put on as well. And uh, within about five years, she had her debut at Covent Garden wow. in London as a lead singer in uh, some operas, and she just had her Metropolitan Opera New York debut uh, two years ago, three years ago now. Oh, congratulations. So, That's fantastic. Yeah. So we give uh -huh. them a go. We, we take a risk on them and um, we say, you know, go for it, and if it works for you, fantastic, you know. Uh, so that's what they are festivals basically about. Now, now somewhere you seem to be indefatigable, uh, Gary. Somewhere in there, there's a Shakespeare festival as well. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, what, are you, hated, what are you doing? What are you, what are you, what's going on? What are, what, what are you doing? I hated Shakespeare when I was at high school. I thought it was boring as anything. Um, but a few years ago, probably about oh, 17, 18 years ago, um, as part of what we do in providing employment to local uh, performers, we started um, commissioning plays from local playwrights and getting a local actor to act it out. Uh, so um, when we did the Mozart year, that same year as young Jessica Pratt performed for us, um, I thought it'd be a good idea to do the play Amadeus. It's about Mozart and, you know, Academy Award winning uh, uh, movie and it was a play originally. Uh, so we did it as part of our Festival of Classics, and it was so extraordinary, such a wonderful event because we did it in the Grand Lodge of the Masonic Temple here in Brisbane. It felt like you were back in the 1700s. It was extraordinary experience. We did it the following year, and then we toured it to Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Hobart, uh, the full wow. Queensland production, standing ovation every night uh, from the audiences. And so... Uh, inspired uh, by that, I thought, we've got wonderful talent here, wonderful acting talent. And then one of the actors said to me, we're not really getting many opportunities to do the great classic uh, Shakespearean roles. Uh, the, the big government-funded theatre companies here sort of uh, seem to have given up on Shakespeare. So I said, okay, let's put on a Shakespeare festival. Uh, so... I got some money from a local Brisbane city councillor. I was on a committee uh, with her, you know, deciding whether to fund park benches and stuff like that. And one day she happened to say, oh, you know, I've got some money. It would be nice if we had a little festival in Oxford Street at Bulimba. And I said, what about a Shakespeare festival? She was a bit taken aback, I think. Um, so I walked down Oxford Street here at Bulimba. It's quite an upmarket sort of place. And I said, we could put a Shakespeare film on in the cinema. We could have a Shakespeare dinner in the restaurant. We could have uh, Shakespeare sonnets in the little cafe there. And at the end of the weekend, we do a full production of a play in the park for free. 
so we did, and it was Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh. Mm. And, always you know, works well in the park. Always goes well in the park. Absolute magic. And uh, we had about a 1,000 people turn up with rugs and, you know, picnics and everything. And uh, she said, oh, that was fantastic. Uh, what about next year? So we've been doing it every year for the last uh, Excellent work. Years. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, I must say, I actually I absolutely love Shakespeare now. <laughs> <laughs> You're a convert. Yes, yes. And, uh, again, we've had some terrific success. The fellow that we appointed as the artistic director, because he knew his Shakespeare, um, was appointed as an artist in residence at the Royal Albert Hall in London two years ago. Ooh. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah. And yeah, he's yeah. done some work with the Globe Theatre in um, in London as well and toured around with some Shakespeare there. Uh, so he's he's doing really quite well, and we gave him the opportunity to act and fully produce Shakespeare productions in the park. They're fantastic fun, uh, Lex. They just... I know, I know. Yeah. They are, absolutely. Oh, gosh. There's the Shakespeare Festival, Silver Memories. It just goes on and on. The Queensland Choir. You've played such a, an integral part in Brisbane's cultural life. We wish there were more more Gary Thorpes. <laughs> Tell me, Gary, what's next on your to-do list? Ah, yes, I've started to lobby a few politicians about building a replica Shakespeare Globe Theatre here in Brisbane. Oh. Wow, that'd be as, good. as an education centre, a yes. cultural centre, um, an employment centre for actors, so they would, you know, do guided tours, that sort of thing, put on full productions, uh, wouldn't just be Shakespeare, you could do all sorts of things in there, but we'd make it a 21st century globe theatre, so instead of a thatched roof, we'd have solar panels uh, on the roof to, to run the theatre, mm -hmm. uh, and we'd film everything, stream it all around the country to schools and drama <laughs> schools and that sort of thing, um, and that's sort of one of the uh, projects that we've got in mind. Uh, we've done a few big projects, uh, 10 years ago, no, it was 12 years ago, we put on a massive symphony. It's called the Gothic Symphony. Uh, it's in the Guinness Book of Records. It's the world's largest symphony. Um, and I was in London in 1980 for a performance of it. It requires about 500 musicians. Who's that by? Who, who, who wrote uh, it? A little-known British composer called Havergal Bryan. And okay. he's, he wrote, he was one of the most prolific composers of the 20th century, but no one knew about him. He, he wrote 32 symphonies, 22 of them after the age of 80. <laughs> so he's like a, a geriatric prodigal um, mm -hmm. instead of a child prodigy. Yeah. And uh, none of his works were released on record in his lifetime. He lived to 96 years of age, um, born in 1876 and died in 1972. He's a British composer. Yeah. Um, but he just used to write these works and stick them in a cupboard. And uh, now every one of his symphonies and four operas and concertos have all been recorded. Um, uh, but the poor fellow died without <laughs> knowing any of this. Um, it's a tragic story. There was a book written about his life called Ordeal by Music. Uh, <laughs> <in> the, <laughs> wow, uh, what a title. Yeah, extraordinary uh, thing. We actually, um, when we managed to uh, get the Gothic Symphony done in Brisbane, People flew from all over the world to be there, uh, and it took uh, took me 28 years from when I had the idea 
that we might do it to get it done here 28 years. Uh, so my hair was black when I started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Now, lastly, classical music lovers outside of Brisbane can simply Google for MBS to tune in, but please remind us once again, how can listeners tune into Silver Memories? Through the app, uh, Patricia is the best way. Uh, mm. It's very affordable. It's about less than $80 a year uh, mm. for it, and as well as being able to hear uh, the 24-hour-day programs and the lovely announcers and the special programs, uh, you can also get the images and a whole lot of quizzes and some on-demand uh, programs as well. So it's sort of like a whole little mini lifestyle um, service for mm. people. The The app is the best way to get it anywhere in Australia. Um, if any aged care homes are interested, just go to the Silver Memories website, silvermemories.com.au. And we've started uh, doing a series of live concerts in our, we have a performance studio attached to the radio station. We film them and send them out to the aged care homes because during COVID they couldn't get any entertainers in mm -hmm. because they were in lockdown. So we film them and we send them out these live concerts of um, things like the Andrews Sisters Tribute Band and things like that. Um, so all those things can be accessed again uh, through the app. Uh, so that's probably the best way. Oh, Gary, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today and talking to us and, and more broadly, uh, thank you for the great uh, contribution you've made to the promotion of uh, cultural life in Queensland. Thank you, Lex. Thank you. Gary Thorpe, General Manager for MBS. Let's talk again, huh? Look forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Gary. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey, guys. Lockie, the audio editor here. Lil Patty and Big Lex are getting ready for next week's show right now, so I wanted to let you all know what's coming up on next week's episode of Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. Lex and Patricia will be talking with Jessica Grisham on how hoarding can kill you, and then myself, Barbara, and Steve will be in Jeff's cafe chatting about it. Elizabeth Farelli is next week's guest in Nostalgia Town. Noel Whitaker will be discussing all things superannuation fun performance in Money Extra, and Patty and Lex will step on out with Vivian Schenker from 2RPH. If you missed any part of the show, you can check out our website at babyboomersguide.com.au for full segments. And if you missed any part of the show, plus heaps more, Thank you all for listening, guys. We'll see you all next week with Lil Patty and Big Lex on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation, which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A dot org dot A-U. And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus, you can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomers Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomers Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia Little Paddy Amphlett and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get connected, Get connected and stay, stay connected. connected.